sure exactly, and honestly, where exactly I left off last week for sure. But um, So when looking at this overall view of who God is and what a wonderful God he is, and then focusing uh, very shortly here on God as he presents himself in the scripture as the Father in this Trinitarian um, knowledge about who God is. Uh, so we're looking right now at the attributes of God. I would just remind you that someplace maybe you can put a little thought place in your brain to come back and touch these if I don't remember to do that because oftentimes I think about, I'm going to do something and then I get started and moving along and I forget to do that. But just remember that every time we talk about one of these attributes, we're talking about your Heavenly Father that your Heavenly Father is whatever we're saying here about God. That's, that's who your Heavenly Father is. Um, so that's, that, again, is our purpose here in doing that. I'm going to ask uh, you to uh, take some verses of, that here are in, on our sheet and um, read them when we come to them, when it's time to read them. So if somebody would take John 5.26, please. If you just read. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you, you might want to hold on to that. I think it appears a couple times today once you get that point. A um, couple verses that are impl- implied implications of what we're looking at in that particular section. 1 Timothy 1.17 and maybe somebody could also, the same person can take 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16. John? And then down in the, under the next section, somebody take Exodus 3.14. Brenda? And then down, uh, one more move down, Hebrews 13.8, Beverly, and James 1.17, John, and Hebrews 1.11 and 12, Miss Laura, and Psalm 102.26-28. Braden, Okay. So we're uh, talking about here the attributes of God, again, the characteristics of God, what's, what's true of God. So God does things because before that, God is something, okay? So God, God is able to extend grace to us because he is grace. God is able to share truth with us because he is truth. So the attribute is, is first and foremost not something God does, but for most and foremost, it's what God, who God is, Okay? And so that's where we're at in this particular thought process. This first section of attributes that we're going to look at today are, is uh, just about anybody, you, if you pick up a theology book, uh, I know that's not everyday reading for most people. Um, it's not everyday reading for me either, but it's, it's something I do read and have read uh, many times over the years. But you pick up a theology book and start looking, at, you look at the chapter under the attributes of God, most of them are going to divide the attributes of God into into two categories, and they're described different, different ways, okay? Some of them describe them as incommunicable attributes, those that cannot be communicated to man, and, and communicable attributes. And there's moral attributes and relative attributes, and like I said, there's, everybody has, sort of has their own way of dividing them up and, and putting them into two different categories. Um, I am not personally familiar with anybody that doesn't do that, at least in some some regard or other. 
Otherwise, otherwise, I would tell you that the list that I have here, again, if you look at different theologies, some will pick out other, have a different looking list than I have. Some of them have a different word than I have. Um, it's just all based on observation and, and personal conclusion. So these particular attributes I'm looking at are what I refer to as the constitutional attributes of God, those things that make him up, make up who he is in his essence and being, that existence of God. These are true of him. They would also, under another person's uh, division, they would be called incommunicable attributes because they're not communicated to man in the same fashion that they are true of God. And the first one is spirit. And you might say to me, well, I I have a spirit. Yes, you have a spirit. Okay. But what we're talking about when we're saying that that God is spirit, we're talking about the fact that he is not, we're not talking about the fact that he he is the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the fact that he is a spirit. We're talking about he is spirit. Just, that's just the word that describes him. Okay. And it needs to be distinguished from, from the Holy Spirit and needs to be distinguished from the same spirit you and I have in our human makeup as God made us that way. And when we're thinking about this concept of God being spirit, as you're saying here, I'm, I'm going to try not to read what I have here, um, but just sort of ref- give this to you as a reference point. But he is not limited in any way by space or time. So that is obviously then linked with what we talk about later in omnipresence. But he is spirit, Okay. Um, noted here, again, I was like I said, I'm going to try not to read through it, but sometimes I'm going to say something that's pretty much here. If you were to study the word uh, spirit, the word in the New Testament is translated by the word spirit, you would find that it also can be translated by the word wind. So, it, so just like the wind, you don't actually see the wind, you only see the effects of the wind. You see something blowing, that the wind is blowing. Okay, So that is that word is used that way, so maybe it gives you a little bit of an idea of the fact that, you know, that here God is spirit in, in that fashion, in that particular sense. So he's invisible, he doesn't have any material uh, limitations, he doesn't have any material observation. Now God can take on observable forms, obviously, we know that from the word of God. He can look like a burning bush, he can, he can look like a person, okay? He can look like a dove in the case of the baptism of, of, of Jesus Christ. So he can take on form. He can take on appearance. But he is spirit. And that just simply means that he is not confined by any kind of space so, or time along the way. So very quickly, just a couple of verses here. The first verse, very... Um, um, hmm. you, Lena, you're going to have to move two verses up, I think it is. This should actually read John 5.24. No, this should actually, you're going to have to change the chapter. This actually should read John 4.24. Yes, ma'am. John 4.24. Sorry. Change it, please, in your notes if you are keeping the notes or whatever. John 4.24. Okay. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So um, my brain did a whatever there, put down the, wrote down the wrong things. Uh, so John 4, 24. So, and then 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6. John? Okay, 
Okay, so the word spirit does not appear in that verse. The word invisible is the word I want you to think about out of that verse, okay? And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Okay, and again, the idea that he cannot be seen in, in that particular context, though, it, again, he does take upon form to be seen at times. And so God is spirit. There are create spirit beings, the angelic world, what we sum up with the word an, angelic or angel world. Uh, they are created spirit beings, and as I said, I acknowledge the fact that we have an immaterial part of us, soul and spirit, and spirit, so, but it's different in the sense that God is spirit in his existence. He exists as a spirit. He does not exist in form. He just exists as, as a spirit. And then God is self-existent. Uh, um, so, uh, again, probably if you're like me, law, this is one of those ones that really starts making your brain spin around and stretch and whatever, because how can something not need something to exist? But uh, God doesn't need anything to exist. God didn't need anything to start him, didn't need anything to create him. God just simply always has been. Um, how that will work out, I don't know that we'll ever. I don't, I don't even, some of these things I w- I don't, I'm not sure even when we are sitting in the presence of God and, and d- dwelling with him that we're going to ever be able to wrap our finite mind around. I don't know how much God's going to help us get beyond our point of today, like, wow, how, how does that happen? Um, and so um, God, is, God truly is self-existent, self-existent. And because of that, as it says here, it's, he, he's not under anybody else's influence or control. He does not owe anybody anything. So he doesn't have to respond to anyone because he, in fact, is self-existent. And then I don't know um, if somebody would read Exodus 3.14 and Elena, if you would find John 5.26 actually for me. Exodus, yes ma'am, Brenda. Okay. I am that I am. And the implication of between, behind that expression from out, out as voice is speaking to Moses here is simply this I am is a a phrase or a a grammatical concept that stresses like this no beginning thing this just I'm I'm here I'm here in the way I'm here today I've always been and I always will be it's just a loaded very loaded expression that he's that he talks about here in this particular situation and then also John 5 26 finally So the Father has life in himself, and, he's, and, and in just acknowledgement here of the equality of the Father and the Son, that the Son also has life in, in himself. And so he is spirit, he is self-existent. There's another fancy word for that also, but we won't bother with it at this particular point. And maybe, um, maybe a, you know, uh, later on I'm going to tell you that there's no one attribute that um, 
is the focus or central attribute. That, that is different than some people feel very strongly about, okay? But I feel very strongly that the attributes of God are always in perfect harmony with one another, and no, no one attribute can violate any other attribute, and it doesn't need one attribute to control that attribute. It is simply the nature of God to be in perfect harmony with himself at all times, okay? Somebody says to you that such and such a... a um, Attribute is the central attribute. That's fine. They're not, they're not heretics. They're just a difference of opinion. And uh, so uh, don't get rattled by it and don't get mad at me because I'm telling you I don't think there is one either. I just th- feel that that doesn't need... We need that. We need to have something control us, control part of us to keep the other parts in place and without g- going out of control because we are who we are. But God doesn't need that. That's putting, I think, a limitation on who God is. But it's something that you'll read, you'll see, and you'll hear. So, um, but I guess I'm allowed to my opinion also until I'm fired. So, so whatever. So the next thing this I want to start said all that to say is God is immutable. And when I think about God as my Father, I am so glad that He is immutable. Okay, because I know as a father that my children had to be somewhat aware of what kind of a mood I was in before they approached me about certain things, okay? Because if you get tired, you're cranky, you're upset because of their behavior or whatever, you can respond to them in less than an appropriate way. Now, some of you fathers are perfect, so you don't understand what I'm saying, okay? So I'm just telling you where it's at. So... um, and to, and to uh, make a funny illustration about this, um, I have a sister that's seven years younger than I am. So you can imagine she was the darling of the family. There's two, just two of us, and she was the darling of the family. Okay, so whenever my mother or I wanted my dad to do something, we got my, her to ask my, my, we got her to ask my dad. Okay, so when we would stop, want to stop for ice cream, we would get Kim to ask my dad if we could stop for ice cream, and she would. Like, before we ever left the house, she'd climb up in Dad's lap and do whatever, you know, snuggle with him. And then she'd say, can we stop for ice cream tonight? And my dad would get this little, tiniest little, tiniest, tiniest little move, upper movement of his, of his uh, mouth. And she would say, he's smiling. We were going to stop. So, so she, we knew how to take effect my dad's things. But see, if he was immutable... Any, either, the other rest of us could have asked him the same question and got the same response, but he, his heart w- responded to his daughter a little differently than he responded to the rest of us. And, uh, and again, he was a good dad, but that was just the way it is. But uh, so God, God uh, I have it in the notes, I think I have the words that God will not change. As I reread these, God cannot change, okay? God cannot change. The word will not, to me, leaves a, a little bit of an open door. I guess, somewhere along the way. And I just want to simply state to you that God, God cannot change. He just he cannot change according to his nature or decree. Um, he is, and, I, and again, somebody will say, well, it says he repents. Uh, we see emotional response. That, those, are, those are, sometimes they're just anthropomorphic expressions. They're just us, descri- the Bible describing God in a, in a way that, us humans can help hopefully understand a little bit, bit the arm of God, the hand of God, the eye of God, those type of expressions. Um, 
but in, in reference to his nature, in reference to who he is and what he is doing with, with his decree, he cannot change. There is no change possible with who God is in according to his nature specifically and, and so forth. So, uh, eight, Hebrews 13, 8, please. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The whole book of Hebrews was written to show that Jesus Christ is superior to everything else. And then as the author is summing up the book in Hebrews chapter 13, he reminds them that this one he's been talking about all the way through. He's not just talking about who he was in you know, those, those years of earthly ministry. He's talking about who he is all the way through, all the way through history. And then James 1.17 Okay, so if you were, if you could, could uh, if you could, put God in a place where you could put a spotlight on Him, and no matter where you rotated that spotlight around Him or what, or above Him or below Him, He would cast the same shadow. He, his shadow would never change. Again, in reference to His nature, and in reference to what He is doing with life, and then someone with Hebrews chapter one. Okay, more implication than direct reference, but certainly fits within the category. And Psalm 102. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established secure. Okay, and again, maybe crossover between these last couple of verses and the fact that he's eternal, but there is, I think, legitimate crossover between them. And uh, about someone with Job 11.7. Job 11.7. You're not worn out yet. I've talked a whole lot more than any rest of you have. So, yes, Beverly. Psalm 145.3. John and Brenda, how about uh, Matthew 5.48. And Psalm 92, 90, verse 2. John? And Ephesians 3.21. Elena? Thank you. Okay, God is infinite. He's without boundaries, limitations, whatever. Uh, we are obviously very, very finite beings, um, though our lifetimes right now are being extended beyond uh, what some of us probably expected. To, to get to, um, based on maybe what we saw our grandparents reach or someone else reach in that way. We are still very, very finite. Um, so there's a statement in the middle of this one that maybe I need to... It says, in, uh, there's room for creation to exist in harmony with God's being infinite. Um, what that means, of course, just simply is saying that God is... His, infant, his infinity does not exclude the presence of something else within that inf- infinity. You can have something there. Infinity would, to take the fullness, the, take the concept of infinity to its fullest extent, I guess, would be like to say, well, if we all, this room, we're going to fill this room with infinity. 
Well, then the room would be full. Would there be room for anything else? And that would just be taking that concept too far. And so it just allows it. It was an interesting thought that I read this week, and I was like, oh, okay. But so I included it just because it was interesting to me, and so you have to put up with whatever is interesting to me. God is eternal. God is eternal. God is without beginning and end. Um, and um, present at all times and in all places. Again, this is tied in with the omnipresence of God. And we have Psalm 90, verse 2. John? I'm sorry, John. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, Joe, Beverly, I think you maybe raise your hand for that one. How many more times do you want Beverly to read that so you can mull over it and think about it and chew over it and whatever? Well, that, was, that is a proverbial mouthful that she just read out of, out of Job. Um, incredible, incredible passage she just read. Psalm 145.3. Yep, that's all right. Take your time. Okay, so his greatness is unsearchable. What's that mean? What does that mean to you? What, what does that concept mean to you? His, his greatness is unsearchable. Beyond our understanding. Beyond our understanding? John? How can a finite mind comprehend infinity? Okay. Anyone else? I don't. I don't have an answer. The the answer. I just the, the expression just really just sort of caught my caught my attention as it was being read. Um, so if I was to try to find the end of God's greatness, if I was going out on a trek, a, a adventure to find the end of God's greatness. Would I find it? It's unsearchable. No matter where I search, I would not get to the end of God's greatness. That's how far it goes. And again, that's how all these attributes link together, okay? They're all, they all linked together. And so I have Matthew 5.48 under that one yet. Brenda? Okay, and again, not exactly, doesn't have the word in it or whatever, but if that perfection, that word describes his perfections, then his perfections would include this concept that he is infinite. And then, uh, very briefly, um, sort of interesting to me that God is eternal, and I ended up with two, only two lines on this piece of paper. Um, basically, Basically, what I did was when I was, putting these together was I had two different theology books that I was reading, read this, this one and then this one, and then I would try to put the thoughts of the two books into some kind of a summarized form, 
And all this two lines here tells me that I was like frustrated just even trying to, trying to make it, uh, put it down on paper. And I just probably uh, went this really, really simple route. But I do think we still need the verses, right? Psalm 90, verse 2. John? Okay, and Ephesians 3.21. Okay, so for, the forever and ever captures that. Okay, um, God is sovereign. Um, means different things to different people. Uh, some people are afraid of this expression. Um, they've feel like, I don't think they feel like it gives God too much power, but I think it feels like it takes some power away from them. So it's not so much that they're afraid of God being powerful, it's, it's the fact that they, they don't, they want to be more powerful, okay? Um, just my impression, just my, my opinion. Um, it's a word that is often, there are a few what I might refer to as uh, theological um, grenades. There are a few words that people just sort of, they just pull out of their pocket and they just sort of lob them out there, hoping they, you know, they might do some damage. And some, of the, some words just create, because of what, what people have been taught uh, in the ignorance of the scripture, some people are just not really prepared to to handle some of those words, and so then the words sort of go off um, in an explosive fashion in their lives, and they're not responding to the to the whole thing from a biblical standpoint. Um, and I think the fact the sovereignty of God is one of those words that people just like, you know, they just throw it out there. Whatever damage it does, they don't really care, um, and they and they're not really using it uh, in a biblical context. They're just throwing it out there in hopes that it'll get some kind of response. But God, God being sovereign is someone that's absolutely in authority over everything. It is a word that was used for um, rulers, for human rulers for years. Uh, kings were sovereigns. Um, they were in control. Uh, their word was the only word that mattered, the only word that counted uh, in decision-making or in, in, the, in the way of the government or the way the, that, that, that uh, life in that country was, was uh, done. But so he is sovereign in that in that regard. Um, again, as I've put it, included in this particular statement, remember every attribute of God is acted out in perfect wisdom, and in harmony with righteousness, grace, and mercy. Um, and again, right, right, rightly so, we are. We, can, we could live in fear of what man can do when man has power because man is very capable and very prone to misusing that power. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, this starts with the toddler wars in the nursery, okay, with one child trying to dominate another child and be in control of that child. It starts down there. And if somebody doesn't intervene, you have conflict, right? Um, and so uh, we watch that happen, and we're very, very 
bothered by the fact that somebody has that kind of control. But when it comes to God, and because of everything else we know about God, then even though you may have a different end result of what you believe when you believe about God being sovereign, a different end result than I have about God being sovereign, allowing God to be sovereign in your life is a very, very important battle that you allow God to win, that you allow yourself to be, to be submissive to a God that's sovereign, a God that's in absolute control of everything. And so it's important to do that. Um, just going to take a couple of these next verses. Uh, Genesis fifty twenty, please. I'll just take one at a time if I can remember to do that. Genesis 50, verse 20. Linda? Excuse me, it's 29. I'm sorry. Huh? Oh, it's 20. Okay. This is the story of Joseph with his brothers. And do you ever wonder where, where Joseph learned a lesson like that? I mean, you know, he didn't have any written revelation that we know of. Um, and the life that he had lived in the, the, the latter part of his adult life was certainly not a life that would in itself lend itself to believing in a God that's sovereign. You would believe in some God that just ah, just does whatever he wants to do, whatever morning, whatever time he wakes up on whatever morning, you know. Uh, God that particular one morning decided that, you know, Joseph would be sold into prison, and another morning he decides that Joseph will become important in a household, and the next morning God decides that Joseph will be, end up in prison. Duh. But that's not the conclusion Joseph drew. Joseph drew a conclusion that this God is in control of all those circumstances to bring me to this place where I'm right now, standing in front of you brothers who I could snuff out with one little nod of my head, and I'm not going to, because I see beyond you, I see God. I see God. Uh, you know, where did he, you know, where did that lesson come from? Where did that very, very strong biblical principle come from. John? I was going to say, one of the things, the last time I was at Temple Beth Israel, the after discussion was on Joseph going from arrogant 17-year-old to more seasoned 30-year-old. So we looked at it from that perspective. Okay. When he stand, stood before Pharaoh and that how the rabbi, female rabbi said Pharaoh instead of Pharaoh. Okay. I don't know. Okay. It was a, you missed it. Let's put it to you that way. You missed it. Okay. Ephesians 1.11, please. Marsha? Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. Actively, the word works is an active, energetic involvement. It doesn't show some kind of passive observation. It shows active Involvement, active, everyday participation. And um, if you didn't understand what I was talking about when I talked about the uh, theological hand grenades, um, Marsha just read one of them, <coughs> being predestined, predestination, whatever, just one of those words people throw out. 
Um, they don't really even know what they're throwing out there when they use some of those words along the way. So God is, as to this point, his spirit, he's self-existent, he's immutable, he's infinite, he's eternal, he's sovereign. Aren't you glad you have a father like that? Okay, you know, um, your heavenly father is every bit like that. And then God is omniscient. Um, He knows all because he is the source of all. Uh, He's not gathering information like we gather. Uh, He just simply... He is the source, the keeper of all knowledge, all truth. Um, so we learn. How do we learn, by the way? How do we learn? Experience. Experience. Observation. Observation. Example. Application. Application. Failure, yeah, <laughs> more times than we'd like to admit, right? Failure, Charles? <laughs> it should be someplace in there, right, Charles? <laughs> instruction, Charles said, okay? Uh, direct, direct communication, direct instruction, okay? So there's several avenues, huh, of ways that we learn. God didn't need any of those avenues. He doesn't need his... He doesn't need his, you know, being able to see into the future or anything like, like that to know. He just knows. He just is. And um, I don't have the verses here uh, uh, illustrated for whatever reason, but I'm just going to, so I'm not going to read it or have anybody read it. Just direct your attention to Psalm 139. It is both the source of omniscience and omnipresence, both, both of them being there. So omnipresence, of course, uh, just simply the word omni, everywhere, present, um, also along the way. Um, I'm not sure where it's at on my notes here somewhere. Um, It wasn't there. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I I know it's, I'm pretty sure it's here on the the paper somewhere, but John chapter 1. Let me see if I can find a verse. Okay, okay, so Beverly, oh, okay, I'm sorry, my brain's trying to get too far ahead of myself here. Um, so omnipresence is where I, I'm, my mind's going back between the two. Um, under omnipresence, since we're already there, John chapter 1, um, Nathaniel, starting with verse 47, um, Nathaniel's coming toward him, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or, or no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So that would take us over to the next to the page here to omnipresence. And let me just talk about that while we're at this particular verse. So God is everywhere equally at the same time in his infinite infinity and his eternality. But God also can choose to be what is referred to as being resident or, or establishing residency. And that happened in, the, in this particular passage. That is happening. Jesus Christ is very, is visible 
to all those that can, right there that can see, and they saw him growing up, they saw him being baptized by John, and they saw him here in this encounter with Nathaniel. Nathaniel is looking right at Jesus Christ, who is the, who is the God-man. Okay, so he sees Jesus Christ right before him, and Jesus Christ also says, I saw you yesterday. I was, I was present where you were at yesterday, even though I wasn't there in my residence. I was there in my omnipresence, but I wasn't there in my residence. I, so, so the very fact that God can be everywhere at the same time does not keep him from also, again, as I've said a couple other times in different contexts, it does not keep him from establishing form or appearance just because he is spirit or whatever. And so his omnipresence doesn't keep him from establishing residency someplace. And so now I've really gotten you confused because I've skipped back omnipotent. Um, obviously, when I got to omniscient, I really wanted to get to omnipresence for some reason because um, I went there right away. Um, so um, it says here, it fills up all space. He's aware of all at the same time and so forth and so on. Um, let's look at Psalm 139. All of us will take it back to all of us doing that. Psalm 139, please. I'm not afraid of losing my place from time to time. What I'm afraid of is when I reach the point where I can't find my place again. And then it'll be time for me to hang up the shingle. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So God is omniscient. He's also here omnipresent. Um, and, and I have the passage we just looked at in John chapter 1, verse 48. And then back up to being omnipotent. Um, uh, I have added here to my notes, it, this is more than him just being all power. He is power. And I'll, you say, what kind of gobbledygook did you just say? Uh, just, it's, it's beyond the fact that he, all power might limit him, in, in my mind, might limit somehow what he is. But so he is beyond being just all power or all powerful. He is power in itself and, and, and did nothing. So, and he needs nothing but can do anything. He needs nothing but can do anything along the way. And if somebody would read Genesis 17 1, we'll just read that verse for now. Genesis, Brenda? Okay, I am God Almighty. And uh, so, and finally, uh, to look at um, this section here, uh, God is unity. Before I move past that, again, if you're reading about this, um, you may read that God is immense. Um, and that, co- that concept would 
overlap with God is omnipresent and also overlap with the fact that God is infinite. And so he is, he is immense. It would be another word that I did not include a definition here for, but another word you might be aware of. And he is unity. Um, and you say, no, you tell me there's three persons. Um, he is not compound. Other cultures um, have many gods in their system of gods. Those, those systems of deity, their deity, they are compound because they are, they are many persons and many gods, okay? So uh, Zeus, Venus, they're two separate gods in, the, in, the, in, in that particular uh, culture or whatever. God is this unit with the three persons. Again, this whole idea of three persons, triunity, or Trinity, three, three persons. He is, he is, he is unity. Um, and again, this whole concept of har- harmony, just no discord, no interruptions. Um, and because he is unity, he cannot be divided. Cannot be divided. Um, Not sure this is appropriate, but uh, or exactly on target. But those of you that are parents, have you ever had a child come to one of you to ask permission because that child knows that the other parent is going to say no? Okay, or thinks that the other parent is going to say no, so they come to the parent where they think they they have the in uh, roads. That that is dividing you up. Okay. God, you cannot divide God the Father from God the Son or God the Holy Spirit by going to one of them and appealing to one of them for something. They cannot be divided. They cannot be put into some kind of uh, conflict with one another. They're just, again, in that perfect harmony, uh, in that perfect relationship that God has. Um, turn, somebody read 1 Kings 8.60, please. A lot, of, a lot of verses in that chapter, obviously. Judy? There is no other God. And Mike, Deuteronomy 6.4. If you had your hand up, so I'll call on you. Deuteronomy 6.4. Excuse me? Oh, I'll give you time. No problem. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pick. Uh, oh, somebody? Monty? The Lord is one. And this is that word I talked about earlier about the one of a unit versus one of a kind or one of an individual. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, sort of an easy place to stop. I want to, so I want to ask you a question. I'm going to try to ask you again this next, next week. Uh, we're going to one more week on the attributes and then we're going to maybe before we're in probably possibly next week before we're done with that. We're going to begin focusing more on God the Father uh, we're going to start out with God the Father of the Old Testament and then move through God the Father with the Son and then eventually get to God, our relationship with God the Father. So I want you just to start thinking about a question. What is a father? What is a father? Okay, so we'll give you room for some uh, interaction, discussion of that, of that uh, matter. I want just think it... Will hopefully it'll give you something to think about and stir around and mull over. 
I am, I am certainly aware of and acknowledge that one of the things when we start talking about God the Father, one of the things that we each have to individually, individually struggle with or deal with is the fact that we may impose our experience with a father onto God the Father. So somebody who had uh, a very distant father, non-communicative father, may tend to think of God the Father that way. I don't even want to think about any of you being in this next category, but it's a reality. If any of you had an abusive father, you will have to deal with the issues of thinking about God as being abusive in some fashion. Uh, being out of control, somebody that maybe was somebody that lost their temper, maybe didn't physically abuse somebody but just didn't have control of their emotions, you will struggle with, there's a possibility you will struggle with putting that kind of a image upon our Heavenly Father. And we have to recognize that that is not true, but it is a reality. And for those of us that are very, very grateful to have had somewhat of a normal father. We need to be grateful that that makes it easier for us to appreciate who God the Father is. But what is a father? Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful, gracious, kind, all-powerful God who cares for us in such a minute way, who cares for us Beyond caring for a sparrow, beyond caring for the number of hairs on our head, you care for us in our everyday lives in a very special and specific way. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.